to the Rebel Love Podcast, where each week I'll bring you a new episode exploring love, sex, relationships, and money. Join me as together we question, explore, and strive to understand. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Love Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland. Dr. Nina is a psychoanalyst, an author, a radio show host, specializing in food, weight, and body image issues. In addition to helping women create healthier, happier relationships to food from within, she's the author of the Amazon bestsellers, The Binge Cure and Food for Thought, and co-edited a book on addictions titled Beyond the Primal Addiction. Dr. Nina struggled and overcame the complexity of eating disordered Dr. Nina struggled and overcame the complexity of disordered eating. And with this unique perspective, she's been able to empathize with the shame, anxiety, and desperation of food issues and say for sure that change is actually possible. Welcome, Dr. Nina. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm really, really happy you're here. And today we're actually on a holiday um, in some places. So I really appreciate that. Yes, it's actually Easter here in LA as I'm speaking with you, but it's always a good time to talk about matters of the soul. So I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, very true. Me too. Thank you so much. Before we get into this interview today, I just wanted to find out if you could share a little bit more about yourself and to the journey of how you got to where you are today. Well, and it is so essential to like what I'm going to talk about later is where it starts, which was when I was five years old and I seemingly randomly, and I'll get to why it was seemingly randomly later, looked down at my thighs, five years old, and just was like, oh, you know what? They're too fat. I need to be thinner. And this began my descent into eventual eating disorder hell. So that by the time I was preteen, teenager, into college, I was completely obsessed with my weight. And every page of every journal of the time was covered with numbers. It was like what I ate, what I didn't eat, how many calories I burned, blah, blah, blah. If I went out with friends and I'm hiking, I wasn't thinking like, oh my gosh, such a beautiful day. I'm having a great time. No, I was busily calculating numbers in my head. Like, okay, how many calories have I burned? Am I going to lose weight today or am I going to gain weight? And so this was just it was just eating disorder hell because I would go from restricting to binging and purging to binging to restricting to binging and purging. And it was just this cycle of awfulness that finally ended when I went to therapy when I was in college, but I went for anxiety. And this is such a key point because I never once told my therapist what was going on with food. I considered myself like the poster child for eating disorders because I had every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And she had no idea that I even struggled with food because I didn't want to talk about it. I was too embarrassed to even talk about it. And so that's why I went for anxiety because I was in fact very anxious. So we talked about everything but food. We talked about my perfectionism. We talked about stuff with guys, with my parents, with friends, with the future, all the stuff that you talk about. And eventually by the time I left therapy, all my eating disorder behaviors were gone. I mean, gone without wow. ever talking about food. And people say like that look that you're giving me is yeah. Like, what? Yeah. How do you get rid of all your eating disorders? How do you go from being the poster child for eating disorders to having no eating disorder without ever talking about food? 
And that's the point is that it was never about food. Food was never the problem. It was the solution to the problem. Right. And so the problem was my perfectionism. The problem was my inability to deal with certain emotions. My problem was certain like attachment things that I had. Mm-hmm. And when I dealt with those, all of the eating disorder behaviors went away. Why at the age of five did I suddenly and seemingly randomly decide that my thighs were too fat? So my parents are college professors and we came from a, I came from a very academic, quiet household. It was very like calm. Like their idea of a fun time was literally to go to the library, go to different parts of the library, <laughs> get books, get back in the car, go home and read those books in different parts of the house. This was a family day together. So very, <laughs> very like reading was very special in our family. Very and and I was not that kid. Like I did reading was not my idea of a fun time. Mm-hmm. And I was just naturally not that quiet, studious girl that I think they thought I should be. And so I was always being told, like, you're too loud, you're too much, you're too like you're you're too dramatic, you're too this, you're too that. So that idea of too much in my five-year-old mind became there's too much of me literally. Mm. And so like that idea of I need to, I need to be smaller to be somehow better was my mind making some, some sort of sense of this message that I was getting. And so these both point to the importance of psychology when it comes to matters of eating disorders or any kind of thing like this. It's really not about what it seems to be about. It's about our relationship to ourselves. Wow. Wow. I, I, I feel like that's, uh, you know, that's actually quite common hearing people talk about this happening so young. I didn't realize that until I'd heard it a few times though. And then hearing you say it again at five, that the earliest I'd heard was eight. And I thought that was early, but for a child to, to look down and have these thoughts about themselves, I just feel like that's so, um, intense, I guess, (laughs) you know, and did you, at the time, did your parents know that you were having these thoughts? No idea. And by the way, they were ex-hippie college professors. We weren't watching TV. I didn't ever see a magazine. I mean, the only magazines we had were like Time magazine or mm-hmm. maybe yeah. Ms. magazine. Uh, but there were I wasn't seeing anything in the media that would make me compare myself to women. And I was five. So mm. it was definitely, it, you know, it's definitely a, a psychological way of making sense of these messages that I was getting this mm-hmm. too muchness. Mm-hmm. They had no idea. No, they had no idea. They were too busy with me. Yeah. Right. And did they, um, so when you went and got, you know, went and spoke to this therapist and got this help later on, did they ever find out or did they, did you speak to them about it? No. Wow. Wow. Hey, listen, there's a reason that I'm a psychoanalyst. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, my parents did the best that they could given their backgrounds. And I'm right. not a big believer of blaming parents. I think no, me we have to explain. I, I'm a parent myself. And my my daughter, um, when, when she was 14, I, I, I don't know, she had a so I have a, a daughter who's 13. And then I have an older daughter when she was when she was around the same age as my current daughter is she had a bad day at school or something. And I said, Oh my gosh, how do you feel? And she goes, Oh my God, mom, stop therapizing me. (laughs) (laughs) Ask you how you're doing. You know what I would have given for a mother to ask how I was doing. So parents just, we do the best we can. And our best sometimes just isn't a fit or isn't a fit in the moment. 
And it's not about, my work is not about blaming parents. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people have wounds that do not go back to their childhoods. It's about explaining. It's about understanding, well, what happened and how did that affect your relationship to yourself and therefore also to your body and to food? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> so when this was happening, what kinds of things, just so we can kind of see what, I guess, what kind of uh, eating dysfunction looks like, or can you explain a little bit about what are some of the symptoms? Like, obviously, like you said, controlling your food, thinking about it constantly, obsessing over certain amounts of food. Are there other, some other ways that this can kind of manifest? You pretty much covered all of it. I think People who know that they have an an unhealthy, unhappy relationship to food, they know it because they think about it all the time. They're preoccupied with it. They can't go to a party or like, you know, for the days that we can go to parties again, to a dinner party or something to, and without thinking, okay, what am I going to eat? What am I not going to eat? What are people going to think? It's always on their minds. Mm -hmm. It's a preoccupation and an obsession with it. They're thinking about it all the time. And what my patients and the people that I coach in my programs constantly tell me is, oh, I I not only want to lose weight, I just want to lose the thinking about it. I want to lose the obsession and the preoccupation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're thinking about it all the time, if you're micromanaging every calorie, fat gram, macro or whatever, that's problematic. If you're binging, you know it. Some people will say they're binging and they've just eaten four cookies. They'll say, oh, I totally binged on cookies. And I'll say, what do you mean? And they'll say, well, I ate four cookies. Some people will say, well, I totally binged on cookies and they ate 40 cookies. So oftentimes the word binge is used incorrectly, but it's generally a large amount of food eaten in a short period of time, followed by a sense of guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And the difference between overeating and binge eating is that overeating, you just have a little bit of too much and you say, oh, I overdid it. That was good though. I'll just take, I'll take it easy tomorrow. I'll exercise more, whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe you feel bad about eating too much, but binging is when you feel out of control and afterwards you feel a terrible sense of shame. So it's not like, oh, I ate too much. I feel bad. I ate too much. It's, oh, I feel bad about myself. I hate myself. There's something wrong with me. Right. And it goes to that shame place. Mm-hmm. And the shame spiral. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had that from drinking too much. So yes, that's yeah. happened before. Okay. So how can like, I, I think that if you're in this state where you are like, like you, what you said before about you going on that hike, really kind of stuck with me because I can imagine being in this beautiful place and everyone's like around nature and enjoying the fresh air and the space. And in your mind, you're obsessing about probably the pace you're walking at. So you can think about the calories, you know, what you've eaten, if you're going to eat or not later, these kinds of things. And I, I can imagine that would be really quite exhausting and that it would also affect like that scenario in particular, really affect the, the experience of that of that scenario with your friends as well, those relationships. So how does these disorders affect the relationship with yourself, but also relationship with others? Well, I actually want to answer that by answering a question you didn't ask, or you asked sort of covertly, which is why food? Because why food has everything to do with the question you did ask about relationships. So people say to me all the time, 
why food? Why is food my thing? People right. have even said, why can't I be a- addicted to meth? At least I'd be skinny. I mean, a woman actually said that to me. She said, like, why can't I be addicted to meth? First of all, you're not addicted to food. It's a coping mechanism that also hurts you, but it, it also helps you. But why food is that when we are babies, our very first experience of relationship is being fed. So we're, you know, like a baby's like held in arms and mom's looking, usually mom, not always. Somebody is like gazing at the baby and they're held in feeling safe and warm and comfortable and blissful. And that experience is bound up with being fed. And so in our unconscious, food equals relationship. Now we don't consciously think of that, but look at our language. We talk about comfort food. Mm. Comfort food is really a wish to be comforted. We talk about being hungry for love. We talk about being satisfied in relationships. So in so many ways, we unconsciously do associate relationship with food. When relationships go awry, food can take their place. So people can be unreliable, unavailable, or unpredictable. But food is reliable, available, and predictable. And so often people have more of a relationship in a sense with food than they do with people because people are scary Mm -hmm. on some level. And it keeps you from risking in relationship. It keeps you from connecting and potentially getting rejected if you're not really all in. It keeps you putting on a facade and not really showing up in an in an authentic way, show up mm-hmm. inauthentically. So it really has ripple effects through so many areas of life. And the secrecy creates a lot of shame too. So a lot of people will say, and I remember thinking, oh my God, if they only knew, if they only knew the awful things that I do, they would be so disgusted with me, they wouldn't want to be my friend. So it, it keeps you from really showing up fully. Mm. in relationship. Yeah. Wow. I just like when you're describing this, it just feels so heavy. There's such a heaviness of, you know, hiding and yeah. (laughs) Interesting choice of words, right? Yeah. Yeah. Naturally went to heavy and people feel weighed down by their bodies and by their, the weight of this sort of toxic relationship to self. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the shame, I just, you know, I really I remember watching this show once when I was little, it was a a show about this woman who had anorexia and she was very thin. Like she looked like she was going to die. She was so thin. And I remember on the show, uh, she was having, feeding her through a drip because she had no nourishment at all. And she was losing it because she thought that there was crumbs on the table. And obviously she was ill, very, very ill. And, but I just remember thinking, how, how does she, think this like and she was so terrified that they would put drum um sorry the crumbs in the drip or something I, I i guess i was young so that was kind of my interpretation but i guess that's what she was worried about but it was just so intense watching this thinking oh my goodness like she's going to die and that's what i just kept thinking she's going to die if she doesn't do something she's going to die and i think at the end she did get help and thankfully she looked she looked okay at the end but i i don't even know how she would get through that because it was so it was just all this stuff going on in her head that I wouldn't even know where to begin. 
Well, what you're describing is really um, a kind of an almost psychotic state that people with anorexia can get into, because if you have a starved brain, you cannot think and you can mm. become psychotic in a sense, not in the sense of like talking to Jesus down the street, like, you know, like people who are have true psychosis, but in the state of, of, of losing contact with reality. But people that I treat are really on the opposite side of that, which is they ha- they can't stop eating food. Mm-hmm. They can't. They feel like they have no willpower. They feel like they have no control. They feel like there's something wrong with them. And I help them realize, like, no, it is not that you don't have willpower. It's that your method of helping yourself, because if you're turning to food, it's for a reason. Your way of helping yourself is also hurting you. It's like a frenemy, right? It's it's a friend. It's doing something for you. It's helping you numb, escape reward, you know, turn emotional pain to physical pain. There, there's so many ways that it functions on your behalf. But of course, it also hurts you because it is bad for your soul and for your body and you know, your relationship to yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I, I just, I just feel like this is so, so common. So many people, I remember a friend of mine exactly saying what um, the patient of yours said before, like why food? Why is it food, the thing that I've chosen. She doesn't drink alcohol and she doesn't take, she's never taken any drugs or anything like that. And she's like, it was a real thing for me. And actually she got diabetes and took the doctor saying to her, uh, she said something like, oh, I'm going to try and control it with food. And he rolled his eyes and said, sure, if you like, if you want to lose your foot or something like that. And it was, and it was just like such a slap in the face where she was just like, and she's the kind of person that if you tell her she can't do something, she will do it. And so she lost a, a really dramatic amount of weight in a, in a very short amount of time by cutting carbs. She just cut her carbs out. And, um, and then she actually did affect her blood sugar and it did help her a lot. She still had to go on medication, but it was in a lot better state. But I was just like, it just, to me, the reason why I was telling that story is because it was just so dramatic, the shift, the mindset shift that happened because of this experience, you know, something triggered her where she was like, someone's saying something that severe to your face, who's a doctor. And she was really angry at the time with him, <laughs> but yeah. I'm sure in her mind, it went from food is the thing that comforts me and helps me and keeps me safe and does whatever it did for her mm-hmm. to food is the thing that can make me lose my foot. So mm. yep. that, that forced her to deal with food in a different way. But I, I see a lot of bariatric patients. People have had some form of bariatric surgery and they've lost 200 pounds, 150 pounds, whatever. Mm -hmm. And and guess what? They start gaining it back. The regain in the bariatric community is insane. It's something like 98% of people gain back all their weight. Wow. Wow. And so, in fact, I had someone who was the, who was in the biggest loser come to me because they had, I can't say who they are, but of course they, they, you know, same thing had happened. Mm -hmm. And that's because they didn't deal with why they were eating. They just dealt with what they were eating or, or, you know, how, how much, Mm. and you, you know, you've got to look at what's eating at you because it's not what you're eating. That is the problem. It is what is eating at you. Mm -hmm. And then the, so the solution is not to cut out carbs, you know, forever. The the solution is to find a different way to relate to yourself, which is what I had that experience when I was in college, which is what led me to to do this work to realize, oh, wait, it wasn't what I thought it was. Right. It's like a, a weed and a root. Like if you just 
pluck a, a weed, it's going to grow back because there is a root that you cannot mm -hmm. see, but it is it's there in the dirt, in the ground, kind of mm -hmm. analogous to our unconscious minds. Mm -hmm. There are aspects of us that are hidden from us, but mm -hmm. have so much Im impact and influence on what we do. So mm -hmm. if we just look at the behavior, we only go so far. You got to look at like, why? Why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Not what are you doing? And sometimes that why is in your unconscious mind just to make things complicated. Mm -hmm. but that's where I come in. Like I help you figure out what is hidden from you. Right. Okay. So the first step, because actually that was going to be my next question. Yeah. How do we, so, you know, enlisting somebody um, qualified such as yourself to help finding the ways that we can be aware of what hidden is hidden is helpful. But what's the step before that? Like, obviously it's manifesting as, you know, binge eating and all of the things that we've just spoken about. And then what if we're in a position where, okay, I would love to go to psychotherapist, psychoanalyst or somebody who can help me, but I'm just, I can't afford that right now. What would be an option for someone in that position? Well, I mean, now I have to say they should get my book, The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating. You set me up so perfectly for that. I don't even have it near me to hold it up. Oh, wait, here it is. Hold on. Here it is. If it can help, let's get it. Yeah. Um, but seriously, the first step is to stop dieting because dieting actually, uh, well, what is this, the expression? Never trust a four-letter word where the first three letters spell die. <laughs> Diet, diets, diets, they, they, yeah, they actually disrupt your relationship to yourself. They keep you from intuitive eating. They keep you in the cycle of dieting, binging, diet, binge, diet, binge. I mean, that, that diets don't work and they don't work for physiological, biological reasons. There are a plethora of studies that show that even the stress of dieting can cause cortisol changes that make you gain weight, but also they, they, they don't work for psychological reasons because the experience of deprivation or the anticipation of deprivation is just going to make you want something more. And that also leads to the, what's called the last supper syndrome, which is, well, I'm not going to eat pizza or ice cream until I lose X many pounds. So I'm going to start my diet on Monday. So that means between now and Monday, I'm going to have a ton of pizza and ice cream or whatever else, which causes people to gain weight. And then they're on the diet and they're deprived and eventually they go off of it. And then it's easier to regain it because they've messed up their metabolism and blah, 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 blah. So the first thing I'd say is stop dieting. The second is I'm going to give some help right now, because if you don't have access to me or someone else who can help you um, dig around, do some emotional gardening in your unconscious, what do you do? So that's why I created my food mood formula, which I do talk about in my book. Let me preface it with a, a, a short story you know, of someone who came into my office and she said, hey, Dr. Nina, maybe your other people have like emotional issues going on and that's why they're binging. But she told me that she was a food addict and that she could prove it. And I said, because I don't believe in food addiction. Okay, let's hear. It. And so she said, oh, that the night before she'd been watching TV, she'd had a perfectly good day at work. She was like Netflix and chilling and perfectly fine when all of a sudden, as she put it, Ben and Jerry's was calling her name. She's like, calling my name. I'm an ice cream addict. 
okay, what were you watching on? No. Yeah. What were you watching on TV? She said, oh, I was watching Charmed. That's her guilty pleasure. So she, you know, she's all happy. She's watching her guilty pleasure shows. Everything is good. Clearly, she's a food addict. What was the episode about? She said, oh, well, it's when the devil comes down and the sisters start fighting and everything gets really, really nasty and awful. And and she's like, uh, <laughs> because she stopped. She looked at me. I looked at her because in that moment, we both knew what had happened, which is that watching this show had activated her own issues with her own sister. And before that could reach conscious awareness, she went to ice cream for comfort. Mm. Ice cream was not the problem. Ice cream was the solution to the problem. So if we, if we had had this whole conversation like, okay, when ice cream starts calling your name, go take a walk or a bubble bath or brush your teeth, nothing would have happened. We had to realize that the problem was her inability to deal with her feelings about her sister relationship with her sister and, and how sad it made her. And so ice cream is associated with needing comfort. So for years and years, people coming in and they'd be telling me like, oh, I ate this. And I realized, oh, what they really wanted was if it was ice cream, it was like they wanted something, they wanted comfort or they would come in and they'd, they'd say, oh, I, I ate, I ate like an entire loaf of toast, you know, and what they really wanted was there was some kind of void within them. They were symbolically filling or they'd say, I ate the entire bag of Doritos or pretzels or even carrots. And really they were angry. And so I developed this food mood formula, which helps you figure out based on the food that you are choosing, because generally everyone has sort of a go-to, yeah, either nice. smooth and creamy or like sort of filling like, so smooth and creaming, ice cream, pudding, that kind of stuff, filling, filling a void, pizza, pasta, muffins, cake, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and then crunchy. And so, so just recognizing the relationship between the food you are choosing and the clue that it gives to your emotional state can be a huge help because then you can go, oh, this is what I really need. What would I say to someone who needs comfort? You know, how do I fill this void? How do I express my anger without eating something crunchy and then getting mad at myself. So that can be a huge step that people can take to just start to realize what's going on in them. Because often we get so quick at going to food. We don't even realize like chunky monkey person. We don't even realize we're triggered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I really love that with the food mood. I never, I never really thought about that. Like what kind of food am I eating and what is, what void is this filling? Man, she would have had, that would have been such a great realization with her in that office in that moment when she came in to like prove something to you and then she was like, oh, yes. But yeah, and, and I will tell you that as we worked through her ability to, to tolerate her feelings towards her sister and all of that, ice cream stopped calling her name. And I should say that this food mood formula is really for when you're using food to change the way you feel. Right. It's not like, oh, it's a hot sunny day and I'm I'm a hot, you know, a hot day I'm going to have some ice cream. That's not the same thing or I'm going to have some chips with my lunch or I'm going to have a piece of cake. That's different. It's when you're using it with 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 the intention of I'm going to eat this and then you can't stop eating it to feel differently. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. Emotionally. Right. 
and some clues to, cause I think, I feel like sometimes these behaviors are so close to us that we really don't unable to identify them as that. So I think some clues to that would be shame after eating. Would this be right? Um, hide, hiding food, like kind of knowing you're kind of sneaking around a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, having a different feeling after eating the food or doing it because you want to feel a certain way and knowing that. Mm. Yes. I should also say there's a, there's a difference between physical and emotional hunger. So physical hunger is physical. Like you feel it in your body, your yeah. stomach growls, you get lightheaded, you can't think. And pretty much anything will do the trick. Like when you're really hungry, oh, I'll eat that because right. I'm really hungry. Mm-hmm. Emotional hunger is located more in your mind. Like something looks good or sounds good or, you know, and you're, and you're eating it so that it's going to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's another distinction that's important to, to make when it comes to making these choices. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I think part of this, I mean, shame's a really horrible place to be. And if you're in this shame cycle, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but often it's not something I really want to share. It actually doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it's like, oh, it's certainly not something I necessarily want to talk about. What could I do to kind of one, get myself out of that and then like, I mean, obviously listening to this podcast and like reading your book, all of the things we've mentioned, are, you know, that step forward. Um, but if we were to come to you and if we were able to ask for that next level of help or someone who was qualified such as yourself or somebody similar, what would be kind of the first step to unpacking that in the office with you? We shame ourselves, right? We feel shame often because we are shaming ourselves. We have thoughts like, And we often talk to ourselves in second person while doing it, by the way, that's another clue. We have thoughts like, you shouldn't have eaten that. You're so disgusting. Or you should have a boyfriend by now, or you should be further along in your life, or you should have a different career. You should, you know, we should on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we talk to ourselves in a way that causes a lot of pain and shame. We shame ourselves through our words. And so the most important thing to do is to really look at the way you talk to yourself. First of all, are you talking to yourself in that second person voice? Do you say to yourself, you, (laughs) instead of I? Mm -hmm. And that's something to really look, look at because it's easier to be mean to yourself from a second person stance often than it is to say I. Mm. Like, you know, I, I had a patient once who, uh, this was a couple of years ago. She went to a, a Christmas party and she said that on the way she was telling herself, OK, I'm going to go to this party and I'm not going to restrict. And I'm going to let myself try a little bit of everything. And I'm just going to be I'm going to be OK. I'm going to give myself permission to have whatever. And then she overdid it. So when she was driving back from the party, she said to herself, oh, my God, I can't believe I can't believe I ate all that. I can't believe it. You then she switched to you. You have no control. You have no willpower. You're never going to lose weight. You suck. And I said, and she's telling me this. And I said, well, can you just rewind and say that again, but say it from an I place? I suck. I'm I'm never going to lose weight. I'm disgusting. I'm like all the things that she was saying. And she just said, I can't. It sounds too mean. You know, Mm. it's a lot easier to be mean to ourselves from that second person distancing language. So that's one thing to, to, to really look at when it comes to the way we shame ourselves. The other is tone. 
So another person came to me and she said, hey, I tried that talking to myself thing. She said it didn't work at all. Didn't work at all. Doesn't work on me. So I asked her, well, what did you say to yourself and how did you say it? Please repeat it exactly as you said it. And this is this is this is what she said and how she said it. She said, well, I told myself it's okay. You're going to be all right. And it didn't work. Well, of course it didn't work. Like who could possibly feel better after that? Would you say that to a friend? It's going to be okay. I said, just say the same words in a different tone. You're going to be okay. You're all right. You're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Is gives a totally different message and feeling. And so just those two things alone, the words we use and the tone we use to speak those words make a a huge difference in how we feel. Now, you're going to shame yourself if you're saying mean things, but if you're supporting yourself, that's the antithesis of shame. So if you wouldn't say it to your best friend, Mm -hmm. a child, or anyone you love or like, do not say it to yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really, really great advice. Really, really, really great advice. Awesome. This has been so awesome. So um, I know we've talked about reframing using diet. So if we just, let's just go back to that for one second. If we're not doing diet, if you said, okay, the first thing we need to do is stop, stop dieting. Mm-hmm. What, how do we kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say control our eating then in a healthy yeah, way. That, yeah. That's, and that's the problem because we then end up rebelling against ourselves. So I say to reframe what success is. So if you're looking at, oh, I ate that and, and I feel bad about myself because I ate that, you're just going to stay in that bad place. Mm-hmm. But if you reframe success as I'm going to figure out why I ate that. And so instead of, oh, I, I ate those cookies, it's going to be like, oh, I realized I ate those cookies because I was mm-hmm. feeling sad or I was feeling, you know, like some kind of a but say there were crunchy cookies. I was really upset at my boss or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whoever. That's success. Then your, your mind is starting to, to change from what are you eating to why? And eventually eating cookies is not going to be helpful because you're too aware. And what happens is people start being more aware of why they're turning to whatever it is and it stops working for them. And so they naturally eat less. And so it's counterintuitive, but the less you think about the food part and the more you think about the motivation, the less you actually end up eating. Mm, that's really useful. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that today. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, or, okay, here's, here's one that might be triggering for some. What would your advice be for someone who's letting the image of their body stop them from finding love because they feel like they're not enough because of the way that they look? I know we're kind of crossing a few different territories here yeah, with this question. Yeah. Well, but, but not really because everything comes down to our relationship to ourselves. You know, one of the best reviews I got on Amazon was someone who said, oh, I, re- I opened this book thinking it was going to be about how to make different food choices, but I realized it's about how to be a different person to myself. I, I, like this person realized that this book is about changing a relationship to yourself. And when you change your relationship to yourself, you change everything. 
So if you are judgmental and critical and awful to yourself and you meet someone else who's judgmental and critical, you're going to think, oh, you know me really well. And you're going to tolerate judgment and criticism. But if you are supportive and kind and reassuring and encouraging to yourself and you meet someone who's judgmental and critical, you're going to want nothing to do with them. And so changing the way that you think about yourself is critical. It changes your relationship with other people too. I'll give you another funny story, which is I, I treated a, um, a singer who had terrible stage fright. And it, this actually pertains exactly to your question. She had terrible stage fright because she imagined that the audience was sitting there looking at her going, she looks fat. She doesn't sound the way she sounds, you know, on Spotify. And she um, and they were just they would just rip her apart in their minds. That's what she thought. Well, why did she think that? Because all of those thoughts were actually the way she thought of herself. She thought she looked fat. She thought she didn't sound as good as she did in person as on Spotify, et cetera. And so she was projecting her own sort of self-judgmental thoughts into the audience and back at herself. So we worked on her relationship to herself and changing these thoughts and, and challenging them and creating new thoughts more realistic thoughts about herself. And finally, huge achievement, she went on tour. And she called me and she said, oh my God, I think different people are coming to my shows. <laughs> because different people were not coming to her shows. She now was projecting her own kind, supportive, mm -hmm. you know, all good kind of attitude towards herself into the audience back at her. And so I think that really illustrates why it is so important to change your relationship with you. Because with, if you think you're pretty great, you're going to trust that other people are going to think you're pretty great too. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I, I really think confidence gets you everywhere. <laughs> it just really does. True confidence, mm -hmm. not, not fake confidence, but mm -hmm. true confidence of accepting yourself and not having to be perfect Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if perfect exists. <laughs> this is weird That's thing. It. People throw this word perfect around and I'm like, I don't know. I've never met anybody perfect in my life. And, and I think that's really beautiful as well that we've all got these imperfections, which is what makes us unique and beautiful. I don't know. I, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm hopelessly optimistic. I just really <laughs> I just think every person has something to offer. Yeah. Yeah. I've never met a perfect person and I have no, I, I mean, that sounds pretty boring to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it would sound pretty rigid too, wouldn't it? Pretty rigid. Well, Dr. Nina, do you have any last words of wisdom for us today? Um, I feel like we've covered so much here and thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up? I do want to say this, which is there is always hope. I have treated people in their seventies. You know, most of my people are between 30s and 70s, but I've treated men and women because men struggle with this too. men mm -hmm. and women of all ages who've struggled for decades and yet they are able to make total transformations in the way that they relate to themselves. I don't talk about eating disorder recovery. I talk about liberation because we recover from you know, a bad breakup. We can liberate ourselves from our toxic relationship to food and ourselves. And I just want to say that no matter how long you've been struggling, no matter how bad it is, there is hope for change. Yeah, thank you so much. I think 
That is super useful. A lot of people would really need to hear that. And um, thank you again so much, Dr. Nina, for being here today. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? They can go to my website, Dr. Nina Inc., D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. And from there, they can access my book, my podcast, my radio show, my all the stuff. They can also find me on Instagram at dr.nina.psychoanalyst. Yes, longest Instagram handle ever, but <laughs> you can access me there and you can DM me. And I, I respond to all my DMs personally and um, you're welcome to ask me anything. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again so much for being here. It has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot personally as well. Um, and you can find all the links mentioned in this episode at rebel love forward slash EP 28. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Rebel Love Podcast, the podcast about love, sex, relationships, and money. If you like this episode, please support us by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and find all the details of this episode and more at rebellove.com forward slash podcast. 